This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Captain Katie Hernandez. Now, Katie is an Army EOD and also holds the world record for the one-mile run in a bomb suit. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into the military, diversity, physical fitness standards, recruitment, joining the Human Performance Project team, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Katie Hernandez. Enjoy. Okay, I want to start by saying, firstly, welcome to the 7X family, and secondly, thank you so much for coming on to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? <laughs> I'm in Boca Raton. Um, it's about 90 degrees and humid, so I'm on my patio, actually. <laughs> it is so hard getting into the Christmas spirit in Florida. Oh my gosh, I know, I do miss the seasons. I'm from Buffalo, so... Well, let's start there then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, so growing up, um, we were definitely more on the poor side. So um, I actually didn't start playing sports or anything. My hobbies, um, we moved a lot. Um, so so growing up, I wouldn't say it was easy. Um, so options as far as, you know, playing sports and having leisure time that really was was not in the cards it wasn't until um I got to high school um and I actually cheerleaded <laughs> my whole life uh up until my sophomore year of high school my phys ed teacher came up to me and he's like all right so let's let's have a chat and I was like okay and he was like you know you know you're an athlete right and I was like what what you know like I had cheerleaded my whole life um never played sports. And he was just like, all right, I'm going to take you under my wing. We're going to start playing sports. And he, he taught me how to run. He was the lacrosse coach at the time. Um, so I started playing lacrosse, got into track my senior year, um, got into college, went to college for, you know, playing sports and stuff. So it completely changed the trajectory of my life. Um, just one person believing in me kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of how I started this whole new path of my whole new life pretty much had a new group of friends, everything. So that was kind of the background up until high school. Um, I do have a sister and she, we couldn't be more different, but love her to death. Um, she's, she's married. Ha she's actually married to one of my uh, soldiers, one of my old soldiers. I was stationed in Hawaii um, for a minute and uh, she came out, 
they met. So she's actually married with a kid from one of my old soldiers. So that's kind of the family growing up. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, what do your parents do profession-wise? Uh, stepdad's retired. He was a correctional officer. And my mother, she sells insurance. So... <laughs> Brilliant. Now, when you talk about the the uh, kind of social element, the the poverty element to sports, talk to me about that because I think that is, you know, a real thing. Of course, like when I grew up, we took our sweatshirts off, we made goals, and we played football, real football with your feet. <laughs> um, and so there was no real barrier to entry financially. But what I've seen being a dad now and having a, a son who grew up in the states is there is a, a cost to participation in a lot of these school sports. So what kept you from playing? Right. So, okay, we're going to get a little vulnerable here. Um, so basically, um, because of the financial issue, it caused my family to move around a lot. So I was born in LA and um, my biological father, who I haven't spoken with probably in the last two decades, um, he kind of, he ran up my mother's credit card, ran her credit up. So her credit was shot. Um, so what we ended up doing was we ended up moving in with my grandparents, my mom's parents, uh, for a while. So we were there. Um, they were going through a messy divorce, brings us to about middle school. We move again. And so there wasn't really a foundation of like, okay, this is home. This is where I'm growing up. These are my friends and these are the sports and this is, these are my interests and hobbies. A lot of it had to, it was revolved around, um, you know, messy family dynamics and and dealing with that. And uh, I took care of my little sister a lot during that time. Um, kind of, I think I kind of played a role of like trying to protect her, honestly, um, from seeing and dealing with a lot of it. Um, so that was the role I played for the most part growing up. Um, and so I really got grounded once I moved um, to Hamburg. It, it's in Buffalo, New York, and. Uh, there I started to figure out who I was and, you know, had my interaction with my coach and that, I mean, so I started playing sports, my really my junior, senior year and, uh, you know, went to college from there. Um, but yeah, I was the first one to go to college in my family. Uh, first one, obviously to play sports in college and all that. So, um, trying to figure out even how to pay for college and student loans. Like my parents, they didn't have that kind of a financial background of like, you know, not signing up for a loan with an 11 interest, like 11% interest rate, like that, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so I had to do a lot of figuring out on my own. Now, you said you're from LA. Whereabouts in LA were you born originally? Thousand Oaks. Okay. I used to live in Burbank for a few okay. years, so just down the road. Yep. All right. Well, then... You touched on the cheerleading as well. It seems like, you know, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, that mentor element happened in Buffalo. What were the pros and cons of cheerleading? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I think growing up, it was just like, that was what the popular kids did, right? <laughs> uh, there really wasn't too much uh, depth there for that. I, I never was super into it. I was never really great at it. Um, I really found my niche once I started playing playing sports and I was like oh but like when I started playing sports I didn't know the difference between offense and defense you know I cheerleaded on the sideline like go team but had no idea what was going on um but once I found sports my whole life changed and I, I felt like I was part of something and I you know had this need for um you know competition and all these things it kind of was an outlet for me where I didn't have that before so, so many people that come on the show, whether they're military, fire, police, etc., it's amazing, firstly, 
how when you look back, there are elements of trauma before we ever put the, the uniform on. Um, and I think that subconsciously drives a lot of us to these professions in the first place. That's also the unspoken piece of the PTSD or mental health puzzle as well. We, we forget, you know, what happened for the 18, 20 years prior. Um, and a, a positive thing that usually happens with people that are on the show, because more often than not, they found their way to somewhere incredible, is a mentor in their life. When you look back now, you traveled, you obviously had some change in parental dynamics. What was the impact of this coach on your life path? Oh, my gosh. I, I think where b before he came into my life, I was just kind of going day to day, didn't really have goals, ambitions. Once he started investing in my well-being and investing in my future and being like, you know, you can go to college, you can do things, you, you can be bigger than what's going on now. And once I got that guidance and direction um, and purpose, uh, that's when things started to change. So uh, role models and sports, uh, getting kids into those, those team atmospheres, get, getting that understanding of, you know, winning and losing and camaraderie. And it, it's so important. And uh you, you, we kind of see it dwindling a little bit, you know, with the mentality of, you know, everyone's a winner, but I am such a big advocate on, on winning matters and having that, you know, drive. So him coming into my life introduced this whole new way of thinking for me. Now, what about career aspirations? What were you dreaming of becoming as you progressed through high school? Uh, you know, I, I honestly, like before, before that, I really didn't have much vision. Um, after I started playing sports, it was just like, you know, I wanted to be a phys ed teacher, which I, I you know, I was a phys ed teacher for a year. I coached the uh, varsity lacrosse uh, high school. Um, I did those types of things. Um, and it wasn't until later on, it was my junior year of college um, when I was going through a recruiting, you know, table. We had like college fairs and their ROTC had their their little uh, booth set up. And they're like, you look like you can do some pull-ups. Come here and win a free T-shirt. And I was like, okay. Uh, so I went over, did some pull-ups. And he's like, here's a T-shirt. He's like, you're perfect for the military. Sign here. And I was like, all right, let's do this. So um, that's, that's really how I started. I, I did, you know, growing up, always admire, like, the military aspect. Like, my mom tells stories about, like, how I'd go to school wearing, like, camo and all the time, like, all the time. And, like, I did have, you know, like, there was this, like, romantic vision that I had of somebody like serving the country. Um, so I don't think it was completely just random that that happened and that worked out. But yeah, that's how, that's how I joined. <laughs> now, I've heard such a smorgasbord of recruitment stories. And again, I'm, I'm a first responder, I'm a firefighter, so I've never served in that particular organization. But I've heard horror stories. And then I've heard, which still hands down is the best, Pat McNamara, who's a Delta operator, his dad sent him with a lawyer to his recruitment to make sure he got the very thing he asked for and didn't kind of get hoodwinked. Um, <laughs> what was, you know, what was your journey? Did you, did you sign up for a specific area and did you get that area or was there an element of being thrown in the mix a little bit? Um, so I was originally branch ordinance and when I received that news, I was like, I don't even know what ordinance branch does. I, I obviously know now, you know, it's, it's logistics and stuff, but I was like, this isn't really what I want to be doing. And so there I was, I was a brand new lieutenant in in ordinance uh, leadership course. And um, all of a sudden these two EOD, explosive ordinance disposal techs walk in and 
they kind of have like the swagger about them. They're just like, eh, if you guys want to, you know, blow shit up, then uh, see us after class. We'll be outside. And they left. That was their recruiting pitch. And I was like, I don't know what EOD is, but I'm going to go find out. So <laughs> See if they have a t-shirt for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I went over and talked to them. And like it, from the moment they started talking about what EOD was, I was just like, oh, that's what I want to do. And it was it all kind of fell into place after that. Now knowing um, the only way to be branched EOD is if you're in the ordinance branch. So it worked out. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, what about when you came back from you know, that that particular enlistment and you were literally at a, a fair at college. What was that conversation with your family and, and was it well received? <laughs> oh, my mom cried. Oh, my mom cried. Um, but she was proud of me. It was just one of those moments like her little baby's going off, you know. And uh, so she she's cried, I think, twice telling her the news. Like once was when I told her I was joining. And the second time when I told her I'm going to go be a bomb tech. And she's like, a what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I think you live for giving me a heart attack. And I was like, no, but this is what I want to do. So, but she's so supportive. <laughs> now, what year was it that you enlisted? Let's see. It was 2013, 2013. Okay. So obviously we're deep into the, you know, the, the uh, conflicts in the Middle East by that point. Mm -hmm. What was your, your particular 9-11 story? And then again, you know, it's one thing enlisting during peacetime, but at that point it was very clear the dangers of, you know, the, the, the danger, excuse me, to the members of our military. There were some horrific videos, etc. So what was your 9-11 story and what made you have the courage to sign up in a, you know, in a very dangerous time to enlist? Yeah. So my 9-11 story, I was, I was in school um, and they kind of all, they went on the announcements and they're just like, Hey, everybody report back to your homerooms. And we sat in the homerooms and all the teachers were playing the news for us. And um, it, it was devastating. I remember going home and same thing. My parents just had it on the news and it was, it's definitely a trying time. Um, but God, I, I, I love, I love America and I love serving. And so like keeping all that in mind, like it's a no brainer, like some, but somebody needs to do it. And like, yeah, why not me? I am, you know, able and willing. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, we're about to talk about, uh, a specialist branch that involves a high level of, of physical exertion and strength. As you were signing on the dotted line, what did your training look like that? How prepared were you from a tactical athlete point of view? Um, so I was always in pretty, pretty decent shape. Um, and, and joining just made me want to go even harder. So like, I've always had this thing, like, you know, everybody tends to discredit females, like physical fitness scores because we are on a different scale. And, and I, I remember some, one of my first PT tests, I went in and I maxed it out. And I remember someone being like, oh, well, that doesn't count. You're a female. And I was like, that kind of like, I was like, okay. So I was like, what's the male standard? So I, I started looking at what the male standard was. And I was like, all right, gotcha. So next time I went in, maxed the male standard. And then it was kind of like, all right, now what do you have to say? And that's always kind of been my my mentality, especially as a female. Um, there, there's just a difference. There's a difference, especially when you're working in a career field such as EOG. All, all pretty much all male. And my company, I was a company commander, and I was the only female, and I was in charge. Um, 
So not only as a female, do you have to make and meet the standard, but you need to go above and beyond it, especially if you want to start to like earn the respect and like, I'm not saying physical fitness is everything, but it's a huge part of the culture. And if you're female, that's just like not even meeting the standard. Unfortunately, the reality is they're, they're not going to pay much mind. Um, that's, that's just reality. That's just how it is. <laughs> well, listening uh, to you on, I think it was a scutter. Oh my God. Scuttlebutt, scuttlebutt yes. <laughs> podcast. Thank you. I was, I was fumbling to try and remember it before. Um, what struck me is you mentioned that the suit you wear is 90 pounds. Have I got that correct? 84, yes. Yeah. Okay. So in the fire service, um, there is the whole diversity discussion. And more often than not, it's done the wrong way. Like, for example, if you're going to create a true physical test for the fire service, you just use the tools that we use as firefighters. You don't add extra weight to, you know, to try and eliminate certain people, but you don't lighten it up and then take the reality away from the fire ground. So a ladder is a ladder, a hose is a hose. You know, the dummy should signify somewhat of an average human being, even though sadly they're way off in America. It's, it should be about 80 pounds heavier. <laughs> and I don't mean that from a mean place. It's just it's statistically... It's, it's reality. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what I love is that, you know, you, I'm assuming then, are held to basically a universal standard in that world because you either can operate in the suit or you can't. So, so talk to me about that. Once you get past the male female pft standards what are the real standards in that job specifically yeah so for eod specifically one of the first things uh that you go through um to even see if you qualify is they put you in a suit and they make you do exercises um they make you pick up pieces of ordinance which which range i think the one i was picking up was i don't know 30 to 40 pounds um picking it up putting it down maneuvering maneuvering under vehicles um standing up in the suit going through all of this. And then they, after about 20 minutes, 30 minutes of that, and, and you're smoked, like there's no ventilation, like you're hot. And then they're like, okay, they send you to a, like a more dexterity thinking portion. You're still in the suit. And they're like, all right, put like objects with like objects. Um, what's the square root of, you know, 144 and all these questions. And you just like, they expect you to be able to have maintained some type of you know calm and be able to still perform under pressure by the way i was literally doing mental math going what is the square root of 144 <laughs> so i would, <laughs> so that was I would my fail question. that was my question and i looked at the guys dead in the eyes and i was like i'm gonna be honest with you i wouldn't know that if i was not in the bomb suit so <laughs> but we let that slide I, I was able to pass everything else and a lot of it it's like very you know finger dexterity and not shaking too much and you know staying calm so that's like the first test and as long as you're not claustrophobic and you pass that um all of that it other than that it's a very mentally challenging career field so now what about we're going to get to the world record as well but what about the heat element when I, my, I spent 14 years as a firefighter. I come from England. I worked in California, Southern California and Florida because I'm obviously a, just a complete idiot. Um, so offsetting the heat in my gear was the hardest thing. I think I always had the strength. I always had the endurance. But the ability to offset heat was by far the biggest challenge. How does that pay into your profession? It's so mental. Um, so when you put the bomb suit on, when you're when we're in training or actually going down on something, you don't know how long you're going to be in the suit. You could be in the suit for 20 minutes. You could be in the suit six hours um, going back and forth, back and forth. And so a lot of it is mental. Uh, we operate in two man teams. So team leader, team member. And when the team leader comes back to 
get more equipment or to, um, you know, continue with the their mission. Um, their team member is there either stripping them of their, their jacket, pouring water on them before they go back down. So it's a lot mental, just mental endurance. Just know like it's going to suck, but it's, we always operate under safest procedures as possible. Um, that there's no give there. So now what about your actual training? Did you change the way you trained, um, to maximize your ability to perform in the suit specifically? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say just for my job. Um, I fitness, fitness is my life. Um, so I've always, you know, that, that kind of, I didn't say come easy. I don't say, I don't mean to say come came easy. That's years and years of dedication working out and, and it, you know, it was able, you know, I'm able to translate to my job. Um, once I started training specifically for the bomb suit run, that's when my training changed. Okay. All right. Well, then I want to get to you know your deployments and and that kind of path first, and then we'll get to the bomb suit run as some other some other tangents I want to get to. A question I ask because I don't you know obviously never want specifics from people, especially if they're still serving. But and I'll preface this by saying you know, what I always do: the average civilian, certainly in the U.S., gets a very polarized view of war. One side will be very anti; you're all a bunch of baby killers. The other side will be kill them all, stack bodies, let God sort them out. And then you have the reality in the middle are men and women that are actually standing in whichever combat zone. And so I think it's important that we hear the story. So it's, it's a, it's a two part story. Was there a moment in your career, regardless of the politics that sent you to that specific place where you realized that there were some atrocities, there were some horrible people, and I'm assuming probably towards the people that lived in that country, um, that did need to be taken care of by the women and men to the left and the right of you? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. We're going to get vulnerable again. Um, so I was, I want to say about six months into my tour in Afghanistan. And when things are fine, you're a little naive because things are fine. And you're just like, you're doing your job day to day. We're here to do a mission and you just kind of get into a pattern. And, um, I mean, there's no off days, you know, like there's no weekends, there's no holidays. So you just, you're on, you know, robot mode um, until something does happen. And for me, that, that moment came about six months into my nine month deployment. Um, we had an incident in Afghanistan where a team leader was down range and he needed his team member um, down with him, which isn't, isn't the norm, but um, sometimes, you know, it happens and team members started to walk down and stepped on an ID and blew up and died. And that moment, um, like losing a friend, it kind of puts you in a position where you get, you can, you tend to get a little jaded and you're just like, and you're like, you know, start to question, you know, like, why are we here? What are we doing? Um, because you you just you're so emotionally tied to what's going on um you know going to the the you know the casket um farewell and the bagpipes and everything else you really start to reflect it and you try you try so hard to see the bigger picture um in moments like that because when you're there it, you know you tend to look you know down and inward instead of out and up and um you know eod that's that's our re reality um 
our motto is initial success or total failure. And that's how we train. And um, so for being EOD, it's all, it's all about voluntary. And at any moment you can pull your volunteer statement and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, that's what makes EOD so unique is everybody that's in the community is there because they want to be. And at any moment they don't want to be, they don't have to be. Um, and so you know, specialized units such as EOD or SF or, you know, um, not only do we deal with, you know, the, the mental health issues, um, but, uh, you know, as compared to the regular military, but we, I would say we reckon to deal with it on an amplified scale. Um, we just, you tend to see more, you tend to experience more things that, you know, aren't the norm. Um, so I, that, that was my moment. Um, and, and you definitely go to dark places and, you know, I, I spent three more months in Afghanistan after that and, uh, th- things just weren't the same and you come home and you just try to deal with it. I remember coming home and even, even going to like the grocery store and there's so many people you're not used you're not used to being with civilians and you're just like what's going on like i remember i walked into the grocery store my first time back and for whatever reason it was it, it was triggering and that i like left my car and I, I left and i went home and it was just like i don't you know why why did that happen you know what's and I, it was like you tend to like get upset like everybody here is just going about their day and they don't understand what's going on overseas and what's going on and you know because i was just there every single day for nine months in it in the thick of it and then coming back and just like being thrown back into the civilian world where there's babies crying we're not you you know i'm not used to seeing children and babies crying and all all the you know random people and you're kind of on guard all the time and you you notice everything because that's how you know you are for nine months you're, you notice everything you hear everything they especially in EOD, they tell you to listen to your gut, you know, your, your, that sense, you know, like your spidey sense when something's wrong. So having that turned all the way up for nine months and then coming home and trying to transition into the civilian world, um, it, it, I struggled a little bit, um, much better now you work through it. Um, I definitely think we can do better, um, as an organization, uh, to help ease that transition. Um, and that's not the only transition that's difficult. You can easily translate that to 20 years in service and then retiring and getting out. And then there's no bridged gap. You know, there's the gap there. And uh, they just throw you back into civilian world. They're like, good luck. See ya. And so that it, you can you can kind of relate that to that situation as well being difficult. So. Now with that, and thank you for sharing that. I mean, as you said, you're going to be vulnerable. That's what we people need to hear. You know, we have yeah. enough people beating the chest and, you know, wall full of <laughs> rifles in the background while they tout whatever. We need to actually hear the real human beings. And with the, the bagpipes and the caskets and the flags, that's why we're having this conversation. It was too many of those that I saw in the fire service, too many heartbroken families being handed broken, uh, excuse me, broken, folded flags and, you know, fire helmets that I was like, this is this is just horrendous. And I hate bagpipes now. You talk about triggered, play the damn bagpipes. I told my wife, when I die, if you play the bagpipes, I will reach out of that <laughs> casket and choke you myself because we're not doing <laughs> it. <clears throat> um, but with the transition, I mean, that is such a, um, a common denominator in, in your field, in my field, 
And it's, it might be an injury, it might be being fired, it might be a promotion, and more often than not, it's going to be retirement. But one minute you're a part of something bigger than yourself, you had a sense of purpose, you had a tribe, the next you don't, whether you just went back to your town in wherever or whether you retired. So just with this lens that you have, and you know, you're in a leadership position now, if you could be queen for a day, what changes would you make for our active duty personnel coming home off deployment and then long-term for retirement? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, there's so many things I want to in- uh, implement and I'm in like this, you know, very inspired stage right now in my life where like this is starting to become one of like my sole missions to help fix this. And so I think mental health awareness um, and learning basic nutrition, coping, um, feeling, knowing, recognizing inward when something's wrong and seeking the help and knowing it's okay. That all needs to be education that starts early and often. Um, we, we do so much training, like, uh, online courses, cyber awareness, all these things. And how easy would it be to just implement something so important like this? So I think it needs to be integrated early and often. Um, not just at basic, I think you get a very basic nutrition course at basic training, but it's like the, the standard pyramid, like these are the foods and make your plate colorful, but that's not that's not the education that these soldiers need. Um, so learning how to be well as a whole and not just like bits and pieces. I think, you know, one aspect is of the military. They do very well at physical fitness and then their nutrition is like garbage. They don't, they don't know. They just, they're not educated. Um, enough to know what decisions to make when it comes to nutrition. Um, so that's one thing I think, Additionally, um, we need to have therapists and people outlets and people to talk to while we're deployed. Um, I don't think you need to be on all the time for nine months without any outlets and without being able to talk to someone and letting it out. And I, and I think that's going to need a culture shift to say it's okay. Like, Hey, you just went out on a mission and these things happened and you saw this, like, go talk to someone. It's okay. Just go, go. And I, I, sh- I think it should be like a 24 seven, someone there in a deployed environment, ready to, you know, re- receive any, any soldiers that need to talk and vent. Um, and I also think there needs to be a program as far as the transition, the transition out, the transition home from deployments. Um, I think the of deployments are too long because right now the army does nine to 12 months. And if you look at the train up beforehand, we're typically, if you can believe this or not, we're typically going and traveling somewhere for a month to get pretend combat training. And we're gone for a month from all of our families and everything else. And from people's children, you come home for like a week and then you leave. So like, if you, if you look at the month on the the front end and then, you know, in processing back, that is a whole year out of somebody's life that you're taking them away from you know, family and special moments and, and whatnot. Um, I think we're, I think we're the only service that has nine to 12 month rotations. Um, the rest of them are like three, four to six, I think at the most months. And I think that's very appropriate. And I think that would do so much of a, you know, service to, to the people in the army specifically, um, if the deployments were just shorter, we, we have logisticians, we have people that can figure that out. Um, but for whatever reason, we're like, 
one year, like, see ya, you know, and that year's gone. Now, it just struck me as well. Um, I totally understand the hypervigilance element, and I, it's not something that triggers me, but I have an aversion to the sports bars, cram full of people, television. You can't even look anywhere without TVs, the, the casino in a, in a cruise ship, those kind of places. And, you know, you could say, oh, it's because you, you saw and did all this stuff in your career and that's why you're hypervigilant. I was like, well, yeah, maybe. But also I wonder if, and please correct me if I'm wrong, when you're deployed in certain areas, you have, you know, moments where you are doing the job that you're paid for. And it may be a firefighter, you may be on convoy. But I'm assuming there's a lot of moments where there's quiet and there's downtime and you're in these more remote locations. I'm, you know, I'll get your opinion on this. Is there an element that there's actually more peace in some of these areas in the 24 hour period? And then you go back to suburban or urban America and all of us are basically overstimulated to a point compared to our forefathers of 100 years ago. That, that's a great point. So I would definitely not use the term peace. Um, <laughs> I, I'll never forget, like, my first few nights there receiving indirect fire and the, the, the alarms are going off and, like, you're just like, you know, you're just like, oh, my God, like, this this we we in it now, you know? Um, so I wouldn't say there's ever peace. You always are just like, okay, are we going to get IDF tonight? And then how weird is it that that becomes normal? Um, but I definitely think um, there's an element of simplicity. So you're not having to go to the grocery store. You're not having to pay bills. You're not having to, you're literally, everything else kind of disappears in life. And all that you need to focus on is what's in front of you and the mission. So life becomes very simple. You don't have appointments. You're not taking the kids here and there. You're not, you don't have to cook. You don't have to clean. Like you're going to the chow hall. So life becomes very simple and mindless and you're just there to do the job. So I, I definitely agree. Like, coming home gets very complicated. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm overstimulated. I have all these things to do. I have to indoctrinate myself back into, you know, normal day-to-day -day things um, because over there, everything's very simple. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you for that, you know, perception. Um, the other side of that question that I started this with is another thing that we never see. Um, you know, when, when we are portrayed war through our television screens, it's usually, you know, the, the worst of the worst. Were there member? Excuse me. Were there moments during your deployments in the actual combat zones where you witnessed kindness and compassion? Whether it was the native people that you were serving to protect or the people alongside you? Yes, you you do. Um, you you definitely do, and and you know our our, our mission there uh, as a well when I was there was hearts and minds. Um, so how do we win the hearts and minds? Um, I will admit, though, you know, after a few experiences, you kind of get jaded. Um, so it, it's hard. It's I'm trying to answer this carefully, but honestly, um, uh, you do want to see, um, you know, places like Afghanistan be self-sufficient and, and indoctrin indoctrinate, you know, a democracy and um, the right leadership and everything else. Um it just seemed as though, at least when I was there, the pattern was time and time again, you had the groups that always prevailed and always kind of took away all the goodness that we were doing. Um, some of our mission was to teach, um, you know, the Afghanis or whoever, um, wherever we were deployed to, um, we were there to teach them 
this is how we do our job. This is how to incorporate this. Um, SF, that's, you know, one of their main missions is to, to educate them. And this is how we do military things so that they could build their own, you know, fighting force. And obviously we saw how the, uh, the job out of Afghanistan went. Um, so it, that was very hard for me to watch on the news because it was just like so frustrating to see you know where i lived what we fought for everything we were doing and just wiped out in a matter of 24 hours um and and you know i had friends civilian friends that went over to help kind of control the chaos and try to get some of you know allies that were there out um and to hear their stories it it was it, it was heartbreaking to watch the, that yeah, absolutely. I've had some people on the show, some who are Afghani natives, some Iraqi natives that, you know, were our allies over there. And luckily they were brought over. And it's an interesting perspective because obviously there's a, there's an element of, of gratitude, you know, for us, for them, for what they did and then for vice versa, bringing them back to the US or the people that, that facilitated that. But one guy I had on the show a couple of times, Fahim Fazli, who is an Iraqi, excuse me, Afghani native, who actually is an actor. He was in 12 Strong and some other movies. But he had an interesting point. He's like, the prob one of the other things that we're seeing is the more people we pull from Afghanistan, that's our good people. That's our doctors and, you know, the great minds that were actually removing some of the ability for them to grow on their own. Right, exactly. Um, and we, I feel like there were so many people that were just left stranded there, like good, decent people. It, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, well, I want to get to how you process some of this stuff a little bit later because I know Headstrong is one of your your charities that you adore. A couple of you know things while we're in the, on the EOD theme, I forget which guest it was, but someone I had on somewhat recently was in the EOD field as well, and they almost had an admiration for the evolution of the bombs themselves. And I, they told a story, and I think it was they redid their laundry room so they put their machines outside and they didn't realize that these bombers were coming in taking all the parts from these these washing machines and dryers and then turning it into explosives so i mean you don't have to be specific at all but what have you seen if you see this in 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 uh, the streets with law enforcement you know the the more tactical the police get the more dangerous the cartels get you know what was that kind of constant cat and mouse you had with these bombers in afghanistan so it's so crazy because our job allows you to use your imagination. And so when we're training up for a mission or just in general um, for deployments and stuff, we actually facilitate making our own um, IEDs that we give to other EOD techs for them to disarm. And so it's honestly so it's our whatever creativity that we have to make something um, it's very similar to that of, you know, our, our enemy and, you know, it's up to their creative juices to come up with something that, you know, is so crazy that, you know, that we're going to be, you know, fooled by it. Um, and so it, it's all about creativity and what happens a lot of times when EOD techs are out doing missions, the enemy is out there watching and they're kind of cocky about it. They'll just, they'll stand there and they'll just watch you and you know, they're watching and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and cause of rules of engagement. And, um, so they'll just sit there and they'll just, they'll study our, you know, our procedures and what we're doing. And then they're like, okay, they, they walk this way. They're going to do this. And then they cut this and then they look at this. 
how do I, how do I, you know, reverse engineer that? And so like whatever they did first, how that's where I'm going to, you know, be creative and that's how it's going to explode. Um, so it, it, it's so, it's such a unique, you know, field because I, you know, for a lot of fields, it's, you know, the more proficient you are at a certain thing, the better. And you do the same thing. You do the same thing for UD. If you do the same thing every single time, that's how you're going to get killed. So every time you walk up to a, a problem or a mission or anything like that, you're doing things different every single time because you know that the adversaries are watching. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, so important for us to hear because unless we've been in that suit, we don't know what it's like. Um, I had a guy on the show, Alistair McCartney, who's Alistair McCarthy, excuse me, who is one of the UK's top base jumpers. And he told a story how I forget which organization he was in, but it was people saying, uh, you know, the, the people who take risks, unnecessary risks, and they use base jumpers as an example. And I think there was a video of Alistair jumping or one of, one of the people Alistair knew. And he corrected the room because he was in this room and said, listen, that is one of the most professional base jumpers we have. And he trains, you know, endlessly for something like this. You talked about your ethos was initial success or total total failure. Alistair said, we don't have a 99% success rate. We have 100% or we die. Um, That is how I feel about the fire service as well. If you're not training physically, operationally, mentally, working on nutrition, working on your sleep, and the organization you work for supports all that the more chance there is that we're going to die, our partner's going to die, or the person that we're supposed to save. So how were you able to maintain that bar? I mean, you've got the ethos written. It's a volunteer um, role that you're playing in. What was the philosophy behind it that that made people keep remembering that this can kill you? So what I love about my community is the maturity level. And so when we're training... um, we're there to train and we are definitely in the mindset of this is life or death, regardless of if it's a training or reality um, in reality. Um, so we'll have penalties um, in training, such as noise penalties, something that a buzzer will go, go off or something if, if they messed up their problem, insinuating that this just exploded. And um, I'm an officer, so I, you know, I'm more, I am I'm more of a leadership role. So when I'm watching some of these texts, you know, go through some of these problems um, and the buzzer goes off, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to come down on them. You don't, there's no arguing. There's no back and forth. There's no pulling them aside and being like, you just did this and like being in their face. Kind of, you hear that buzzer goes off and everybody just kind of goes silent because that person that, you know, triggered the alarm they know the severity. They know what just happened. They just died. Everybody around them just died. Um, and, and they feel that because if you don't know somebody as an EOD tech that has been killed um, doing their job, you know someone that does. Like It's such a tight community. And, and unfortunately, that that is the nature of our job. Um, so there, there's not much emphasis on, you know, reprimanding or anything like that. Like they are so mature and they understand how heavy this is um, because we all have friends that have died in action um, who aren't coming home to their families, who aren't coming home to their children. So even in training, we take that with us. Um, Outside of training, um, I, as a commander, you know, I kept things light um, when, you know, it's just the day-to-day work. When they were done with work, they went home. I didn't keep them late. I didn't, you know, they were adults and I treated them as such. And, 
so when it was day to day, everything was relaxed and relaxed standards and, re- you know, relaxed atmosphere. But when we were training, they, they knew we were there to train. And you, I never had to say anything about that. Beautiful. I mean, there's so many parallels to so many different professions that come on here. Another parallel I want to just throw at you before we move on. I adore the fire service. I've worked, I'm from the UK, I've worked on the East Coast, I've worked on the West Coast. Um, and one of the most nauseating things that I see firefighters do is ridiculing the helmet that the European firefighters wear. When you actually look at it, it is just simply better, you know, and as I point to, like the Navy SEALs don't wear tin helmets anymore. What is the evolution of the bomb suit? You know, what what is your... Um, perception on innovation because i feel like vanity and tradition have got switched in the fire service i'd rather look like a fire fire excuse me a firefighter than actually perform at the highest level with the best equipment clearly the bomb suit is not going to make it onto a catwalk in new york so you're already working with you know poor aesthetics but what is that push for constant innovation um in your profession specifically oh okay so that's a good question so i would say that there are there's mission equipment and then there's the bomb suit. So mission equipment, we are attached to soft 99% of the time. When we're deploying, we're attached to soft. So for us, the struggle was we don't have the lightest, most flexible, you know, sexy kit like the soft guys do. How do we get that? We want to be outfitted with, we're, we're, we're stacking with them. We're going to, into buildings with them. How do we look like them? We want, we, you know, we are a team. You know, so, uh, you know, part of, you know, the soft ODA, their teams, like we have two guys attached to them and we want the same equipment. So that was kind of a struggle um, because we kind of had chunky, outdated equipment. And like, this isn't right. We're attached to soft. We should have everything that soft is using. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, as far as the EOD bomb suit goes, um, we, we usually get outfitted with the best bomb suit, I would say. Um, so the progression with that, you know, now we have like little fans and, you know, the helmet and we have little lights and everything else. Um, the heaviness isn't going to go away. The reality is that, it, you know, it's Kevlar. Um, I think a misperception, though, is that, you know, because we have the bomb suit on, we're safe from any explosives um, or explosions. And that's just not the case. Um, we wear the suit. Um, to keep us as safe as possible. But if we're on top of something, it, it doesn't matter. We're, we're going with, with the bomb. Um, but so when we're in the suit, if we're a certain way, if we're walking back to the truck or something off and something goes off, you know, 15 feet away and we have the suit on, that's when it's going to protect us. Um, and when we're walking away from the threat, we actually walk backwards. Um, and the reason for that is we have a metal plate um, that protects our spine. And so when we're walking away, we walk backwards. And so if something goes off, that's going to protect us for the most part. But if we're too close or the net explosive weight is too high, it, it's still not going to do much as far as keeping us safe. So Now, one more thing. I'm sure you're asked about the hurt locker all the time. So I'm not <laughs> even going to throw that at you. There is a documentary called Lethal Weapon 3 that follows an American police officer and his partner is on a toilet and there's a bomb underneath and he manages to jump into a bathtub and save them both. I think it was a documentary. I'm not sure. Mel Gibson. <laughs> so what are, what are some of the most nauseating things as a bomb tech in some of the Hollywood films? Um, you know, it's, it's funny because so, sometimes they just miss the mark. Like, 
you know, you see something that the next explosive of weight is clearly like this and clearly anything around you is turning to pink mist. And, uh, that's hilarious that you brought that up. I actually fell asleep watching the Hurt Locker. So I actually haven't seen the, the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's, that's actually really funny. No, I haven't seen that documentary though. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still available on VHS. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, then getting to the suit, um, one of the, you know, the, the moments in your career, and obviously this is just a, a chapter, um, you ultimately were challenged with breaking a certain record wearing the suit. So talk to me about you know, how that first came on your radar, the preparation, and then the events that follow. Yeah. So my first duty station was in Hawaii. And at the time, I saw my friend uh, i was a lieutenant she was a captain at the time ashley Sorensen. she went out and i and i don't, didn't really know what she was doing but she was like running the bomb suit and it was a big deal at the time you know she she took the world record from somebody i believe over in europe another female in europe and uh, i was like oh that's so cool good for her kind of thing like yeah we played rugby together so we were teammates we were close to her and um then fast forward a few years later and uh, I was in my office one day and it came across, you know, social media somehow. I think we were all still in Facebook. I'm not even sure Instagram was like, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> maybe it was. I saw it on Facebook, I think. And it was like, if you're interested in breaking the world record, you know, get in touch with us. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Ashley still has it. And she did. No one had contested uh, her record since. So I was like, all right, I'll give I'll give it a go. Um, so I reached out and it was me and a friend of mine, Sean Madsen, he was going to go for the, the male world record. And so we kind of were in it together and we started training and, you know, I put the bomb suit on and I went for a mile run. I needed to see where I was at. And, um, I wasn't even close. I was a few, I was like minutes off and I was just like, oh, well, this is going to be harder than I thought. You know, like I was, cause I'm a, I'm a decent runner and, you know, a little bit of weight, put the suit on and oh my gosh, my first mile, the helmet was all over the place. I was like bleeding on my forehead cause it kept hitting me. I was like, I was a mess. And I just, I didn't know how to properly fit it for running. I knew how to properly fit it for when I'm doing actual EOD work. Um, but it's different. Um, when you're running, you wanted to look, bit snugger um so it's not moving all around um so yeah that's that was very eye-opening and it was like okay i can't mess around like if i really want to make this record like i'm gonna have to start training and um i had a really great support team my first sergeant was with me every step of the way i had you know other eod techs that would, would go out and run on the track with me and you know keep my time and yeah you, you cannot put a bomb suit on but i mean you I guess you could try to put a bomb suit on by yourself but it's it's it would be difficult so i always had to have so i always had a team um supporting me and out there with me rain snow we were in tennessee all seasons um and there was a date set and COVID happened and they called me up and like, we're going to have to cancel. And so I, I was training for about six months at that time, ready to go. They're like, we're canceling it. We're, we have to push it. So we, uh, we pushed it back. Uh, I believe it was in April to April and, uh, just trained that much longer through the winter. And, uh, even trying to find a venue during COVID was difficult. Um, we finally found a college that, you know, would host us and, and we, we went and we, you know, we showed up there that day. So that's how that all transpired. 
So you, I'm assuming you ran in a, in a small restaurant around the tables then? That's why COVID was an issue? You can't possibly have run in a stadium where it's fresh air and COVID wouldn't oh, have mattered. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the common sense uh, during COVID. But yeah, um, that was that was an interesting time. Um, but yeah, I, I my training was was pretty intense. Um, I was I was I was nervous. I, you know, you show up on game day and for the suit, if you go out too hot, um, there's no coming back from it. If you start going too fast because your adrenaline's going, and um, the male, my male counterpart who was going for the male record, Sean, um, he had tried the uh, world record twice uh, before then, and that's exactly what happened to him. Goes out way too hot. He, they're like, you know, wow, he's gonna set this world record, blah blah. blah. And then once you hit that wall in the bomb suit, there's no coming back from it. Um, so for me, a lot of my training was threshold training and how do we stay calm in the beginning and slow and then kind of pick it up towards the end. Um, so I think that that was my most, um, you know, terrifying, like, oh my gosh, I hope I don't go out too fast with the adrenaline, you know? Now the, you said the suit was 84 pounds. Okay. And how much did you weigh at that time? Oh, that's a good question. I was probably about like 130, 130. Okay, because that, that needs to be said as well. I mean, one thing if you're an Amazon that was 200 pounds. But... <laughs> no, five. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanna, one thing that kind of popped into my mind when I listened to you on the other podcast was this. You're good friends with Tulsi Gabbard, and I want to talk about her in a second. Um, one of the things that she's been championing is simply, you know, the the disparities with what's fair in the transgender world versus some of the abuse, some of the, again, extremists that are trying to push the barriers. What is the, what was your time when you broke this world record? And then what is the same, the record for the men in the same suit? Oh, that's a good question. What did I get? I believe you probably have a written 1023. <laughs> that's what it was. Okay. So, um, I think the previous record for me was like uh, Ashley had set up about 11 something. So I, I beat her time by almost a minute. But for the male, um, I believe their record somewhere like in the seven minute range. Like it's not even close. It's it's not even not even on the same scale there. Um, and so when these guys are running the bomb suit, like these are fast miles. Like the the guy that holds it now, like that's it's no joke and like pe people try for the male um bomb suit record all the time and they haven't be been able to beat it um so i don't think any females have gone out for the record since me but i you know i hope i hope someone does i hope someone does soon <laughs> well it's an important point and the reason i say this is again comparing the fire service i've served alongside some incredible women who are physically as if not more capable than myself mentally operationally but the equipment stays the same. I am not a big man. I'm not a strong man. I'm not a fast man. I'm just the best version of myself that I can make me. But it does illustrate the same bomb suit. You have, you know, a, a female EOD who has the world record in that bomb suit. But at the extreme, the ceiling of the female record and the ceiling of the male record make a statement. Now translate that to, for example, a UFC fight or MMA fight, should I say, and you've got someone who was born a man, transitions as a woman, beautiful. I totally understand that. If I believed I was the opposite sex my whole life, I would probably want to make the transition at some point as well. But that is separate from the reality of the extra strength, um, strength specifically, 
that exists in some biological men, originally biological men versus the women. And so I think the two different records in this profession that you excel at is a great example of it's not about being unfair, but there is fairness and there's the ability to do the job. But the ceiling of certain genders in certain sports are just they are scientifically different and that can not only be unfair in a sporting competition it can be dangerous in a combat sport a hundred percent and it's i think it's such a tragedy i i think women and as of in the last like 30 years like you know we've been fighting for equality and being able to even have women's sports and being you know recognized as a legitimate like you know men and women's like I played lacrosse so men and women's lacrosse you know and for this day and age is feminist to be promoting you know transgender the the transition from man to woman and them playing a woman's sport is totally income like I can't even conceive it it I, as a woman who played sports and active and I've never wanted different treatment i've always wanted fairness for now the irony that now men are able to play biological men to you know play in women's sports it it's almost disrespectful you know that's how i feel like um because we're not the same we are not the same you can take a a man that is my height and weight and they will be able to outlift me outrun me any day of the week with the same training that's just the reality and you're right it is dangerous especially when you're talking about combat sports like it it definitely triggers me for sure and i don't even like using that word (laughs) um but but to to see and you you know i could only imagine being an athlete in in times of like a female athlete nowadays female athletes i see interviewed who are dealing with this now like I was winning. I was the top. I was getting scholarships. I was doing all these things. And then this biological male came into my sport and with ease is now beating me. When, if you compare him on the male side, he was like 137 on the male scale, you know, like, and now he's winning in the females. So it's just, it's wild. It's wild that this is even entertained and and that it's being enforced. It's, it's, it's off. It's not good. Now, I heard you talking about training with the Army Warrior Fitness Team. Have I got that right? And you put them in suits. Was Alison Brager attached to them? Yes. Okay. Yes, so Alison's Allison. a friend of mine. She's been on here twice now, I think. Um, but we had this conversation. She is an elite athlete. I think she's a pole vaulter and she competes in the gay games. And I think that's the the thing with this whole situation is, you know, you have so many great you know divisions now whether it's an adaptive whether it's the you know cerebral palsy whatever it is all these different areas to be inclusive and to me the answer to this is simply if you transition from male to female and you're now a woman then you're in this division if you transition from from woman to man then you're in this division and that therefore it is inclusive and i think that's just it you again like so many problems we have we have the extreme few trying to speak and i'm sure most people in the transgender community are like no this isn't this isn't fair so, it's you know, not. it's interesting, but hearing Alison, who's not transgender, but but she's in the gay community, they have their own games as well. They don't even need to technically, but they just do because it's an inclusive event for their community as well. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm bisexual and I, I, I you know, it's so funny because I consider myself to be like an old school part of like the gay community. Right. Because for me, like in growing up, there was like gay, bisexual, lesbian, straight like that you know it was very simple so you were gay before it was cool is what you're telling yeah me. <laughs> and, and so and so like um it's i remember just like i was in an airport and i was reading a magazine and, the, and that was the first time i was just like what are all these different pano trans like all these all these all these other you know sexual i'm like oh, i don't understand this is this is this like oh my goodness and you know you're that's cool you're into what you're into but that was the first time i was like oh wow there's a lot out there that I didn't know. Like I thought I was part of this community. I guess I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, what did I see the other day that someone in their LinkedIn or whatever, and it was, it was, I think a, a piece had written about that community, and there were so many letters that I, I just, I mean, I would literally butcher trying to, you know, say the letters no matter what they mean. And again, it's no disrespect to people because we're all human beings. We all identify yeah. in so many different ways, so many different religions and philosophies and. Um, but as soon as you start pigeonholing everyone and demanding everyone treats you a certain way, now you've done what the last horrible leaders, plural, that we've had have done so successfully. You divided and conquered. And I think this is the same thing. You're taking away from the progress of some of these people that were oppressed in the gay community and transgenders, you know, etc. But by swinging that pendulum all the way to the extreme, you're actually causing pushback and doing damage to the very cause that people fought decades for. Oh, yeah. And it's wild because when I got into the military, it was still don't ask, don't tell. And so to go from that to now the military is paying for, you know, transgender surgeries. I'm in the course of not even 10 years. It's it's wild. It's been a wild ride as far as. Uh, you know, this topic goes. Absolutely. Well, I mentioned Tulsi. I have been very um, clear on my opinion of the system in general. I, it breaks my heart. I, I love this country. I love the country I'm from. And I watch people be divided constantly, whether it's over law enforcement, a vaccine, a Chinese conspiracy. I mean, you name it, you know, religion, et cetera, et cetera. But what I see people struggle to really take a step back and view is that we have a system that creates these same people every four years. And the very first person I've really been excited about, period, in that entire arena is Tulsi. And I listened to her on Joe, on on Jocko. She is supposed to be coming on here. I understand I'm kind of waiting <laughs> while Fox News grabs her again and again and again. But it's coming. It's, it's I know we're very close now. But she truly is, if you care about boxes, She's a minority. She's a woman. She was, you know, from the state of Hawaii. Um, she's still, you know, with the Army Reserves. Have I got that right? Reserves? National mm -hmm. Guard, isn't she? she? Oh, she's a National Guard out of California. That's right. Yeah, National Guard. Um, so all of those things. Um, and just a great human being and truly, in my opinion, epitomizes what we need, which is walk softly but carry a big stick. She understands war. She's been a part of that, that entire organization. But she seems like she would be the one that's proactively trying to, for example, address, you know, drug prohibition, you know, maybe not poke every bear that we find around the world and send our children to go get killed by their soldiers or vice versa. So that's a great kind of build up. Um, how did you meet Tulsi? And then talk to me about just, you know, you're a veteran yourself. You're a woman. What's your perspective of her as a leader? 
Yeah. Okay. So Tulsi and I met through uh, the tactile games. We both got, you know, like, hey, do you guys want to, we know you guys are interested in coming out for the tactile games. You guys want to shoot. And this was coming from the president of the tactile games, um, you know, Jared and, and Nick Thayer. Um, so when I got the message, like, hey, do you want to go shooting with Tulsi Gabbard? I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> like I was stationed in Hawaii, like, you know, and, and she is such an amazing role model. So I was like, uh, absolutely. So it was a very like small, intimate thing. She was in Florida for, I think maybe a day we were able to, you know, all meet up at a range and we got to shoot guns and do some fitness. And that was an incredible day. It was like a dream come true. Like, and after that, uh, Tulsi and I went to dinner. I got to know her on more of a personal level and she's just so, authentic and um a little a little intimidating and and you know just seeing a a woman of that caliber like i'm like that that's my role model like it's so it's it's very very easy to say that with someone like tulsi and what's great about her is she's reasonable she's level-headed and she doesn't get swayed by like you know obviously she was part of the democratic party she didn't like she wasn't like oh anything i need to do in order to win succeed all these things she's like no, my, you know, if this is the middle, like my views are kind of here, some are over here, some over here. And like seeing her make that transition, you know, now, you know, into the Republican party, like, I think it just shows how level-headed that she is and she stands for what she stands for. And like, whatever, you know, the, the far left or the far right doing, she's like, no, I'm kind of like here. And this is what I believe. And she's stuck to that. She's been in politics her whole life. And um, that's something that I admire about her. She just kind of st- literally sticks to her guns, you know? So, uh, yeah, she's an incredible woman. Now, you said the Republican Party. She hasn't joined them, is she? She's independent at the moment. Have I got in- that right? Okay. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't sure because, I mean, yeah. it's like you said, that's where we need to pull the ropes in from both sides. And, and as you said, I mean, I think 80% of the people all agree with each other in the middle, but we have these, you know, these mouthpieces on, on each extreme and they are projecting that they represent the American people and they just don't. So that's what I am so excited about her. I don't know how it would work as far as her actually, you know, vying for that position in 2024, but I think she's <sighs> we'll what we see. need. I mean, we just, <laughs> we've had people that divided this country. I would love to see someone black, white, gay, straight, you know, male, female, whatever, who can stand at that, you know, position who is representing our country internationally and also bring this country back together again. We build that community. Oh, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? And like, just, you know, remember, you know, that we're here and we're in this beautiful land of the free and, you know, all, all the things that America stands for. And, you know, you know, you work hard, you get rewarded for it, you know, like, and it's just, wouldn't it be great if we just went back to like that kind of mentality and we're all united and, uh, yeah, wasn't that, isn't that what leadership is supposed to be? You know, ultimately. Maybe one day. I talked about this the other day. I wrote a post and it was very simple. When we talk at evolution, we look at technology. Oh, wow, we're so smart now. We've got nanobots and, you know, we can send people to, to Mars one day. I, I disagree completely. I don't think that's evolution. I think that ultimately the evolution is people realizing the horrors of war. And that we're evolving to actually want kindness and compassion and unity and community more. But that doesn't make people a lot of money, you know, and that doesn't allow tyrants to rule entire countries. So if we could have an awakening collectively, and especially if we were led by someone where we actually were kind of the the new Switzerland, not apathetic, but with 
maintaining peace at the core of what we do, that'd be beautiful. But sadly, there's so much kind of, um, you know, what they call that tactical porn philosophy, you know, where if it's not talking about stacking bodies and showing how many guns you got, then you're not an American, which is such a fucking horrible message to send, I think, especially to our kids. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And uh, yeah, technology has been been interesting. Obviously, uh, both of us have come from, you know, no cell phone era to now it is what it is. Um, and there was a little bit of me that kind of resisted that a little bit along the way. And, you know, more as more, you know, recently, like, I've just been like, all right, technology is not going anywhere. Social media is not going anywhere. Kind of either you're jumping on board or, you know. You're going to be stuck in the old ages kind of thing. So, <laughs> Absolutely. There's a balance, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I, like, I have to put my phone in another room. Otherwise, I just start looking at it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I survived like 20, 30 years without a phone. And now all of a sudden, I'm addicted to it. So, Right. All right. Well, then I want to talk about 7X. But before we do, Get Headstrong was the recipient of the fundraising element of the, the one-mile run in the bomb suit. You touched on some of the struggles that you had post-Afghanistan. Um, what has been your mental health journey? You know, what were the lows and then what did you use personally to pull yourself out of that? And then we'll kind of transition to what you're seeing in, in the military or outside the military, the civilians of the world. Okay. Yeah. So I think what's been very beneficial for me, um, you know, I, I definitely dive into my, my fitness and um, that's, that's kind of been my outlet um, more recently. I would say therapy and talking to somebody is something that I never thought that I would do, but now that I have done it, it's something that I think everybody needs to do. Um, I think that you can benefit so in so many different um, aspects of your life just by seeking that kind of help and just talking through things and looking inward and trying to, you know, put back together things that have been broken or mended. Um, so I, I think that um, as far as the military and civilian goes, I think just even just being fit in shape, paying attention to your health and your, your nutrition and just wellness as a whole. Um, I think some people miss, miss that mark. And so when I look at wellness, I look at it as kind of a big circle and there's different aspects on that circle. And if the outer circle is a hundred percent, you are, you know, fitness you know you're all the way at the edge of the circle you're you've maxed out 100 percent. like you are fit but maybe your nutrition's lacking you know how do we keep pushing that out to the outside of the circle how do we make somebody whole and that's just not fitness to nutrition that is mentality that is your mental well-being that's getting enough sleep that's your you know spiritual health um if you're religious or not um all of that all contributes to a person as a whole and i think when something is very much lacking or maybe you have two pieces of that circle very much lacking um they don't you don't realize how much it, it affects you and so i i use fitness all the time and i i think we're in a society nowadays where it's almost accepted that oh you don't have to be fit like any size is beautiful okay that's great um but let's take a look at your health. Let's look inward. Let's get your, you know, your blood work. Um, how is your heart doing? How is your the longevity and your quality of life being out of shape? Um, I, I'm such an advocate for like everybody trying to be like you said earlier, the best best version of yourself. You know, the best version of yourself might not be you know a pro athlete, but this is what we were given. This is what you know we had to work with. And so for me, 
Um, my wellness comes to trying to make sure that I am decent in all of those aspects. I'm not going to be perfect. No one's going to be perfect in all of them. But how do we get to as whole as possible? Now staying on that, because I want to get to your observations in, in the military and, and outside. But I heard you talking about CrossFit. That's something that I've done now since 06-ish. Um, you know, ups and downs, injuries, not, not really from CrossFit, more from being a firefighter and not sleeping every third day for 14 years. Um, but it really has been a lifesaver, not only the actual, um, the constantly dynamic element of the programming, but also the community. You know, you, when you go to the YMCA and you plug yourself in, you do your whatever routine from whatever magazine, you're kind of on your own. You go into a CrossFit space, it's a tribe again, it's a family, so in the right gym. So what has been your kind of experience with that particular ethos? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, it's funny because Instagram can be so deceiving. So you know, and I, I'm no different. You know, you see my Instagram, you're like, oh, wow, she's a badass and she's in shape and all these things. But you'd never know that I, you know, had suffered such traumatic injuries like that's put me in the hospital twice in the last couple months. And, and so, like, I, I say that because, like, you're right, there is ups and downs. And, and, you know, it's not broadcasted everywhere. So when people see this, like, skewed perception of, like, oh, was, everything's great with her, it's like, well, no, like, we we struggled, too. And I, I think, you know, we can all do a better job of, like, maybe I need to do a better job of, you know, displaying, like, hey, I, I struggle, too. And, you know, I, I have a debilitating back injury right now where I'm not I'm not touching weights right now. And that's hard for me. Um, so how I kind of go about doing that is I have my, like you said, the family that you create from your CrossFit community. So like my coach, my, you know, the other competitive athletes, they're so supportive. I still go to the gym, even though I'm not lifting weights right now. Like I still want to be around them and be about, you know, the community aspect of it. Um, and it's just good to to talk to people and they're they're genuinely like how are you doing how you know how's your back today and stuff and people that genuinely care they want to see you succeed um so being in that type of environment is so unique and so special um and but you know what like it's all mentality right like yeah i think things might not be great right now but i'm gonna do all my rehab i'm gonna do all my physical therapy and i'm gonna get back to it and i'm gonna figure out a way and you know in a few weeks from now, maybe I'll be lifting weights again, like, you know, like nothing ever happened. Um, but I think it's um, so important to emphasize that you're right. It's not a smooth, like every day kicking ass and every day feeling good. There's so many times where you get to the gym or you don't, you're not even at the gym. You're like, I don't even want to go, but having the discipline to go and knowing like, you're never going to regret a workout that you do. Um, you're never going to regret going to the gym and seeing everybody and at least, you know, having that camaraderie feeling. So um, you're absolutely right. Ups and downs, but seeing, you know, seeing that family every day, that's pretty cool. Now, just while I'm on the subject, I had a near career ending back injury um, about, oh God, probably eight years ago now. And I found a thing called foundation training. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, I'll mm -hmm. send you the link to it. I okay. sadly have got friends, one of my closest friends in, in Anaheim when I worked there. He's had two back surgeries, just about to be medically retired from the fire service. Um, you know, just just so sad to see because he was an Olympic caliber rower at one point. Um, but this particular movement practice actually healed my back without any surgery, any pills, nothing. Now it was painful and it took work, but a few months after the initial injury, I was doing a kind of almost like a firefighter version of tactical games. It's called the the 343 Hero Challenge. It's a fundraiser in Florida where they do a bunch of firefighter themed 
workouts, um, and then they raised money for the Burn Society and some of these other ones. And it was 225 deadlifts um, with a burpee in each time. It was a 10 of them. And this was four or five months after. I'm not a big, strong dude anyway, but it just shows that it wasn't like, oh, I just got back to work. No, it surpassed where I was and fixed the underlying weaknesses that caused that very injury in the first place. So I've got episodes that I've done with the founder and I'll send you the link as well. After yes, this. send me that, please. That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's phenomenal. It's, I mean, everyone from Kelly Slater to Lance Armstrong, I mean, all these elite performers, Chris Hemsworth, I mean, they all swear by it as well. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, then the Human Performance Project, the origin of this particular thing that we're about to embark on was Ryan Parrott losing her, his sniper partner to suicide. You talked about your own kind of journey and, and the, the positive coping mechanisms that you found. Before we get to 7X, what are you seeing in the military? I mean, have you lost anyone close to you? Or if not, you know, what is the general kind of um, perception through your eyes of the mental health crisis that we're going through at the moment? Um, yeah, uh, the deployment that I was on, there were seven suicides and it's God, it's such a, it's, you know, it's something so near and dear to my heart. You know, I see it, I've witnessed it. I've been through it. Um, I've struggled myself. I mean, if you're in the military and, you, and you've served and you've deployed, it, I, I'd be hard pressed to find someone who didn't struggle or have, you know, their bouts of you know, bouts of depression, coming back out of it. How do you come back out of that? Um, and so it, it's such an overlooked issue, I think. And and I don't, under, I don't really understand why. And, you know, I've been posting a lot about mental health and suicide awareness and the, the rates. Um, and it's wild to see some of the comments that are like, I had no idea that mental health was an issue in the military. And it's like, so just spreading the awareness um, and helping raise the funds to help combat this that's that's kind of where my life is right now that's been like a huge like i'm going all in on this like how do we fix it how do we change policy how do we get those you know early and often training integrated and into the military how do we get you know a psychologist out to you know deployment stations and stuff like that so i definitely see it i definitely feel it um i'd be hard like i said if you're in the military and you've deployed you you've been through it so what about 7x how did that come on your radar and talk to me about you know what you're trying to facilitate with the fundraising and everything to to join this team yeah so for when i was back doing you know the one mile bombsuit run for the record um all proceeds went to get headstrong this has been a passion of mine for for years you know ever since i started to you know become aware of the you know the problems and so it was funny because once that you know, I, I got the record, right? And everyone's like, all right, well, what's next? And at the time I was like, I just broke a world record. What do you mean what's next? Like, <laughs> I need a minute. Um, and so when this happened um, a year and a half later, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is what's next. This is my next big thing. So I got the call, um, talked to Ryan Parrott. He's like, I want you on board. And, and I couldn't be more grateful for them inviting me into, you know, their, their little 7X family. Um and it was everything that I stood for, everything that I'm about. And now we're mixing some extreme sport, you know, aspects to this. And with that, gaining all this data and everything else to administer a tangible product that we'll be able to hand out and be like, this, this is baseline. This is how, you know, how to optimize your health, nutrition, wellness, mental, physical, spiritual, 
here you go. And, and we're going to do a documentary and all the proceeds from a hundred percent from, you know, the pamphlet and uh, from the documentary, it's all going back to uh, 10 charities that are all about this. Um, so I couldn't be more thrilled to be part of something like this. Beautiful. Yeah. It's, I think that's the problem that I've seen. And I don't know if this mirrors your kind of lens as well, but it's the same really with the cancer thing. So let's take cancer for a second. You know, every man, this dog does a 5k and it's all coming from a place of kindness and compassion. I totally get it. But I don't feel like the cancer issue is a lack of funding issue. It's a lack of proactive elements into what gives, especially our adults, cancer in the first place, our environmental elements. With the mental health, the remove the stigma part is great, you know, but I feel like, you know, it's it's kind of been reduced to 22 push-ups and, you know, beads on, on a 5K, which I do with yeah. my wife, um, you know, the, the suicide awareness walks. But that's not fixing the problem. Community right. is fixing the problem. As you mentioned, the, the holistic body, and that's what worries me about this acceptance of obesity, is it's an expression of your mental health as well. So we're accepting that these people are getting sadder and sadder because I, as a paramedic, have been on these very large people. They're not happy. I'm sorry, right. Oprah and Tyra Banks, you're fucking wrong. These people are right. not happy. We want them to be happy. They don't have to have mm -hmm. six packs. They don't have to look like a runway model. But let's get them to the point where they're actually able to use this miracle that is the human body. And with the mental health side, and this is what obviously Ryan and the team are, are planning on doing, we, we need to remove the barriers to entry for people to get help we need a people to understand all the things that they can do on their own we had to educate them on psilocybin and ibogaine and some of these things are a little bit more or, or less heard of that are very very effective that members of this team have actually used bryce and ryan and some of the other people that talked about it so giving the men and women out there and the children a toolbox so they can actually start working towards it and we can normalize the fact as you said because i've had guests all around the world on here that this is a human problem and there are probably people in less developed areas that do much better mentally but the developed world we've created this kind of misery ourselves somewhat and so we now need you know and this will be just one of many tools that we can give to people and say hey you know i get that you understand this is a thing now here are some tools to actually start working towards your own very personal path out of the darkness to you know, the, the, the optimistic, um, you know, growth that you will have if you're able to pull yourself out of this hole. Yeah, absolutely. I, so many things that you just said are spot on, right? So like that early education and, and getting to them before that mental health even becomes an issue, before suicide becomes an option in their head, you know, how do we fix it from the beginning? Um, and you're right, even as far as like our youth goes, like how do we you know, start to incorporate that into them and just like giving them the toolbox, you know, you're absolutely right. Well, you just reminded me of something I want to make sure I, I get in before we go to some closing questions. Um, we talked about mentorship and the importance of that and how that one coach really helped you start to steer towards this direction that you're still on now. My wife is a student of optometry in Nova, Southeastern at the moment. My son okay. is in the JROTC program in his high school here in Ocala. So talk to me about that very organization that gave you a t-shirt and got you to sign your life away, how you ended up circling around to the same school that my wife's at now um, and, and the ROTC program. 
Yeah, it's a funny life's uh, full circle sometimes, right? So yeah, now I'm back uh, as cadre. Last time I was here as a cadet kind of thing. But, um, you know, it's so funny because I see so much of myself in some of these kids. I'm like, you know, as much as we want to like build them to be the future leaders of tomorrow, they're still college kids. You know, they're still struggling. They're still trying to figure out what they want to do with life they're still trying to figure out who they are um so watching them develop and grow and even from like freshman to senior uh year of college like it, it's so it's so cool to see um the progression and growth that some of these cadets have and, and you know some some start to excel some go the other way some drop out whatever their you know their journey is but it's really cool to be a part of that and um as cadre now that i've been doing this, this is my second year um i i have started to realize how much of an impact, you know, the cadre do have on these cadets. Um, so keeping that in mind and having like, you know, developing patience and stuff like that, you know, it, it's cool. It's cool to see. Now educate me. I mean, partly this is a selfish question because I, I'm finding out for my son as well. I have watched him just flourish in the JROTC program. Now I'm the kind of firefighter that the moment I can, I take my uniform off i call it the monkey suit i hate it you know so i'm not one that's going to be i kind of rode the line of regs and, and all that kind of stuff when it came to to that i wasn't a big fan of the shiny shoes and you know when we're going to be knee deep in shit in our actual job um but that being said he started with basically what was their pe program i think it was wish or something was the acronym but um and he literally about three weeks later came and said dad look i've been doing this for three weeks we haven't actually done any pe we've just had talks and things so I've signed up for JROTC instead. And I was like, shit, okay. Well, I didn't see that coming. And I have watched <laughs> him absolutely bloom. And he's got some incredible mentors in that program. He's also runs uh, track and cross country for the school. Amazing mentors. And the, you know, the, the, the ego in the parent is like, well, wait a second. I can just parent this kid on my own. I've got all the answers. You get over yourself and you realize, wow, we, yeah. <laughs> even if you're an involved parent, you still need other people out there to to kind of steer their course so what at the college level what does the jrotc program look like and then is it an automatic funnel to the military or can also be a leadership um class that ultimately people transition to something else yeah so i think your son's doing all the right things he's in the sports chair you see like he's being he's already so ahead of the game that's incredible i think all you know but as far as you know co collegiate rotc um you know they the students do have the option to take this class as just an elective as it's called leadership um and i think it's just something that everybody should experience and everybody should be exposed to because not only are we teaching them attributes and qualities and how to be a leader and how to you know what kind of leadership style are you what do you want to be what do you want to emulate and you know we get to start thinking of those like ph philosophical questions and start to like and some of them are just like i don't know i've never thought about that so tapping into that and then you have the aspect of we do physical training in the morning and so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you'll see our cadets up and early out and uh, running and push-ups. And, I, you know, I run the I run the PT program, so there you can look at it either way you want. But some are like, oh, we're so lucky we have Captain Hernandez. And some are like, oh, my gosh, we have Captain Hernandez, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> depending. Um, but 
I think you just learn so much having to get up early, having to, you know, do fitness first thing, what that feels like having a training program, having a coach essentially to help you through those things. And then on top of that, you know, we're very big on if you're not showing up and if you're not putting the full effort in, not only are you affecting you, but you're at the detriment of your peers. And, you know, having a feeling of, you know, camaraderie and family and, you know, people depend on you. Um, I think it's so important for, you know, I, I love some of the kids that come through and just take this class as a leadership class because they're they're getting a little something extra that, you know, the rest of their peers who are just going through college aren't getting. Um, so I think it's a great program. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say at the high school level, I'm so impressed. I actually want to get one of the the gentlemen that founded it on the show because I think, you know, it'd be amazing. I think he used to be a firefighter too. So it'd be an interesting story. Just yeah. one quick thing before we shift. Um, I've had many people on here, quite a few of them in the military have suggested, and to me, this just makes common sense. As we are seeing an increasingly deconditioned population, there would be an assumption there's a smaller pool of men and women that can potentially be firefighters, police officers, soldiers, etc. What are you seeing through your eyes with that whole element? So... Yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen it. And obviously, the military is not meeting their numbers. And um, that's scary. That's terrifying. That should be terrifying to everybody. If the military is not able to meet, meet their quota of how many men and women we need to fight our nation's wars. Um, and that's coming down to a lot of things, um, COVID mandates and such. But a lot of the big part of that is the fitness aspect of that. And so if 84 cadets uh, I don't, I don't want to give a number, but there's a good percentage that can't pass a simple one minute test of pushups, one minute of sit-ups and a one mile run. And we have different standards for men and for males and females. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, uh, you know, you, you can only do so much. And then it's like the, on the onus of the individual. And there's some cadets that are like up for the challenge and they're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to work out extra hard. And Catherine Nanders, what do I need to do? And they come for advice. But then there's some that are just like they end up getting disenrolled from the program because they don't meet height, weight standards. And that is reality. The military needs high weight standards and we enforce them. And if you don't make those standards, you get cut from the program. Um, it's the military, you know, fitness is part of our job. Um, so it is sad to see. And especially with people and cadets that are so young and you just want nothing but the best for them and you want to see them succeed and drop the weight and get fit and be able to run that mile in the time frame allotted. Um, but yeah, I, there's, there's definitely an aspect of society which is just like, eh, you're good as you are. No need to put in any effort in, <laughs> uh, which isn't isn't reality. No, we're just kind of retracking on on kind of a comment that you touched on, which is obviously the the craziness through the COVID um, pandemic. This is what breaks my heart: is that we do have an obesity epidemic. We do have a national security issue. You know, whether it's police, fire, you know, EMS, whoever. You know, people that we call when there's you know an enemy bearing down on us or something, you know, an emergency in our community. We need these men and women to be able to do the job. And what just breaks my heart is we had a captive audience for two years where we could have educated on nutrition, on exercise. We could have bolstered PE programs. We could have made real food in schools like they used to up until a very few short decades ago. You know, we could have bolstered local organic farmers again so there wasn't a bottleneck in the supply chain. And none of that happened. 
None of it. It was completely disregarded, almost vilified. How dare you say that underlying, you know, health conditions are contributing to COVID deaths. So I think that you're right. And I had Dan Bornstein on the show who talks a lot about the national security element of this. If this carries on, we're going to become a very vulnerable country. And, you know, if that doesn't wake people up, then I don't know what is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Everything you're saying, like, <laughs> speaking to my heart here, because because it is so true. And it's just like, um, I've had people tell me that, like, oh, your amount of, of fitness is unhealthy. And I'm just like, do you want to unpack that with me for a minute? Like, where is this coming from? It's obviously coming from people's own insecurities and whatnot. Um, and like you said earlier, I don't expect people to break world records or be, you know, have abs or all these things, but you should care about your, the longevity and the quality of your life. And once those start to degrade, and once you start to see all the other health implications that are happening because you're overweight or you're, you're not taking care of yourself, um, that, that should be eye opening and almost terrifying. Like life is so short. So to not, you know, see what your body and your mind is capable of doing. I think you're just doing yourself a disservice and, you know, complacency. It's such a terrible thing. And it's, you know, that, you know, day to day, just living life. Like if you're not doing things that excite you and get your heart racing, like what are, what are we even doing? <laughs> you know, um, because at some point we're going to be too old and not able-bodied and, you know, how terrible would that be to even shorten that you know, short amount of time that we have to do all these things because we didn't take care of ourselves in in our formative years and like going through, you know, our 20s and 30s and, you know, really, you know, you have one body. Let's take care of it. Absolutely. Well, speaking of you getting your heart rate up, one thing I've, I forgot to make sure that we underlined. So when you come on this on this uh, round the world adventure that we're going on, talk to me about what you're going to be doing. Ryan and the guys are going to be running a marathon after skydiving and then hopefully we're all going to jump in the water somewhere. Antarctica is probably going to be awful. Um, but <laughs> what you're bringing something unique to each of these seven continents. Yeah, so how cool is this? So this was actually Ryan's idea. We were talking on the phone and he's like, why don't you bring your bomb suit? And I was like, oh, Ryan, that's a great idea. And for so many reasons, right? So not only is it in theme with, you know, obviously what I, what I've done. Um, but I get to not only raise awareness for our overall cause, but also specifically for the EOD community, um, which is so important to me. So basically what we're doing is, um, logistically, it's going to be a nightmare getting my bomb suit and the helmet and everything there, but we're figuring it out. Um, so when we land, um, I'll be running a mile in a bomb suit and, uh, a friend of mine, Zach Gardner, who's also going on the trip, he's going to be my my P2. So he's going to be the one helping me in and out of the bomb suit. And we're going to do it together. And um, he's going to be helping me out through this. So I am very excited. And, and, you know, my unique, you know, journey through the 7X project. And I owe all the creativity to Ryan. This was his idea. So I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, I am too. So you're going to do that in each of the seven locations. So you're going to do seven one mile runs <laughs> in a bomb suit. Yes, sir. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, then I want to throw some closing questions at you quickly if you've got time. Yes. Brilliant. All right. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today and it's been quite a diverse chat or completely unrelated. Um, I would say if we're talking leadership, the starfish and the spider, and it basically talks about um, leadership aspects as far as what leadership style works the best and you know 
if you are a leader of a single point of failure, how, how do you, you know, empower the people around you? How do you come together as a team? A uh, team of teams is also a great book. And now I'm being real cliche as like an officer in the military, naming all these, uh, <laughs> all these books, but they're, they are truly great leadership books. Um, so yeah, that, those are the two I would recommend. Brilliant. I hadn't heard of the starfish and the spider. So that's a new one yep. for me. Beautiful. All right. The next question, is there a movie and or documentary that you love aside from the Lethal Weapon series? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a great question. Let me think. So I think my favorite movie is, oh, God, also cliche, Troy 300, uh, V for Vendetta. Um, I <laughs> um, Definitely all the John Wicks. Gosh. He, he was incredible in that movie all the training that he had to do for for that he is a legitimate like i started getting into tactical games and shooting and like watching watching keanu reeves go through the john wick movie he it's legit it's legit so <laughs> kind of cliche what you would expect <laughs> one of my my friends i do stunts on the side and one of the guys i worked with 20 years ago that we stayed friends with he works a lot with keanu reeves now so and he says yeah no he actually is that good you know with the weapon and truly a, a very humble human being a very altruistic human being and you don't see him you know sharing all the, the good that he does you kind of hear from it second or third hand so one day i would love to try and get him on we'll see that's a that's a, a big ask not because of you know he's anyone special as far as compared to another human being but i understand the the you know the demand of some of these uber right. celebrities the fact that he took on the ownership to train himself and it, it you know, as far as documentary goes, if you, if you watch the training that he actually put into that movie, like he didn't use stunt guys or anything else. Like his training, it was legitimate. His mag changes and his ability to like handle a, and manipulate a weapon. It is impressive. <laughs> I saw a meme the other day and uh, God, who was it? It was Keanu Reeves and there was someone else with, um, I don't know. Anyway, they had a white belt as well. And then it was Al Bundy, you know, from Married with Children. I forget the actor's real name. And he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. So it was, I forget, it says something like the realization that Al Bundy could kick, you know, John Wick and whoever else's ass. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person or people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh gosh. Yes. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously you already have Tulsi Gabbard on your list, so we're not going to, well, I won't count that one, but, um, my friend, uh, Zach Garner, who's also going on the seven X project. So I think he'd be perfect. Um, he's got a pretty incredible story in and out of the hospital for various reasons, PTSD, you name it. Um, and his, his mission in life, uh, was trying to find holistic medicine and not, um, just for doctors to jump right to, you know, those, those hard medications that people get addicted to, um, which is kind of hit what was starting to happen through his journey of in and out of hospital visits. Um, so what he did was he rode a bicycle uh, across America and to raise awareness for this cause. So he's got a pretty cool story. So I, I'd recommend Zach to come on. Beautiful. Let's make it happen then. I'd love to get him yeah. on. Thank you. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and also, you know, how to contribute to the 7X mission. What do you do to decompress? 
<sighs> so a lot, a lot of times, but what I probably do the most throughout the day um, to help me relax and come back to center is um, it's called box breathing. And for those who haven't heard of it, it's basically just taking a second. Um, and for me, I count you usually to six and I breathe in, inhale for six counts and I hold for six counts and then I exhale for six counts and then I hold that for six and I kind of just do that. And so I'm like, all right, whatever I'm going through, this isn't that bad. And on, on to the next thing, you know? Um, so during the day when I start to like, or even in traffic, when you start to get that a little bit of road rage or something like that, it's something so simple that you can do. Even if you you're having trouble falling asleep at night, I, I box breathe. Um, and not in, you know, other than that, it's usually just, I, I have so many hobbies, but I mean, mainly fitness and sports and surfing and what whatever you know like I, I dive into everything but for the day-to-day -day stuff when i need something quick it's box breathing now you live in an area of florida that will make even the most calm driver want to murder someone so <laughs> i have i have seen that i'm i'm a pretty chill person i'm not a very aggressive person but where my red flag normally exists is how i am as a driver when I do start getting angry, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, like chasing people or anything. But when I see myself getting angry about something that's out of my control, that's my kind of red flag to to kind of reset a little bit. Have with you, you mentioned about coming home. You mentioned about the ups and downs of your mental health element. You live in an absolute shithole when it comes to drivers. <laughs> Is that has True. that been like a barometer for you as well? <laughs> so yeah when i first came down here i could not believe the drivers i was like if you are not with them you're against them and all bets are off you're getting clipped you're getting and it's hit and run and um yeah you're either going 90 or don't get on the or don't get on 95 <laughs> um so and i i drive a truck and uh so driving a truck down here in this traffic that's been something that's been yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've learned to adapt. And I feel like if I were to drive back in Tennessee, the way I drive now that I've adapted to driving here, oh, man, I'd be <laughs> I'd be a jerk up there. <laughs> I went back to England twice the last couple of months and people are just so nice. And, you know, I, I preface this that we've got very narrow, windy roads. You know, there's not a lot of places with medians. You have to have a high standard in the driving you know, world. Otherwise, you will die you will just die you know <laughs> yes. simple as that so the the driving test is very very hard and it takes usually about two or three attempts to pass it you have to have a whole bunch of, of lessons and then you know if you're a, a conscientious driver you do some lessons after you pass for the motorway the freeway um so when i went home you know people will pull back to allow you to merge onto the motorway and you know pedestrians getting ready to cross they'll stop and they'll wave and the pedestrian wave and it's awesome and then i go to south florida and I'm like, I want to kill everyone here. Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so those two contrasting from one to the other, driving down to see my wife after my UK trip, it really does underline that I think if, you know, that's what I talked to Tulsi about. We lose 40,000 people on the roads in America. You never hear that statistic. There's no little ticker on Fox or CNN for that. And not to mention just the accidents, which are in the millions. So, you know, it, it really, we can joke about it, but it actually is, you know, very, very sad because obviously a lot of that driving results in accidents, you know, injuries and death. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's oddly common down here. Like it should not be that common for this many accidents for the, you know, like, um, it's to the point now where you see like, oh, you're in an accident, just pull off. 
like they have signs for that now because it's it happens so often like it's it's wild it is indeed all right well then for people listening um where can they follow you online and then where can they access the gofundme so they can help contribute towards this amazing mission that we're all going on in february well thank you yeah so my instagram handle is katie k-a-t-i-e dot m as in marie.hernandez. Um, and the link for my GoFundMe, that will be in my bio. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, Katie, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an interesting conversation. We've gone all over the place. Um, I literally, I think I've had one person who was in the EOD world out of 700 episodes. So it's been so amazing to, you know, hear your journey through this, you know, to address some of the diversity and, um, you know, different areas that we've explored. Um, and I'm extremely excited to join you on the plane in November, excuse me, in February. Um, so we can circumnavigate the world and I can watch you from a chair run a mile in every <laughs> front <laughs> continent. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to meet you in person. And thank you so much for having me on here. <laughs>